617, respond to report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source. Now, here's your host, Darren Dake. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coroner Talk, the only podcast on iTunes dedicated to you. You know, I've said that so many times since 2014. I try to change it up a little bit, and maybe I need to have a new intro. Maybe I need to change things up, turn it on its head. I don't know. So we're coming to the end of February 2020 and the end of this month theme, which has been infant and child death. And before we get into today's topic, I want to again remind you about training. Many of you hear it and hear it and hear it, and sometimes people will say, hey, I didn't know when the next class started, or when do we have this coming up? So I just want to make sure you know that as this comes out live uh, for the first time, it's going to be the end, the last Monday of February 2020, and the next Medical Legal Death Investigation Online Academy starts March 14th. So you only got a couple of weeks to get registered for that. And then on March 23rd is the MDI Academy four-day course here in our place, in our uh, facility here in Missouri. And of course, if you're anywhere near Texarkana, the 16th of March is the three-day advanced homicide course in Texarkana. And April 1 begins the three-days medical legal investigation class in Yorba Linda, Southern California. And it goes on and on and on. So if... You wonder about what classes are in your area, both online and in your area as live classroom. Go to cornertalk.com, go to the training tab there, and it'll take you to the academy page. You can find out all kinds of training. If you have a question, all you have to do is click on the contact tab and I will be notified and we will start up a conversation because it's all about training, folks. If you're listening this right now, I'm just telling you it's all about training. If you want to be trained on a specific topic, if you want me to come speak at your conferences, your seminar, if you want to do virtual training, if you can get people into your office and you want to have a, you have a big screen or a projector and a webcam, I can be piped in virtually. We can teach up to four hours. I've done as much as six, but four to six hours worth of training. And it saves a lot of money because there's no travel. It's just all virtual training. I can see you. You can see me. I can interact with the class. They can interact with me. I'm sharing my screen, looking at PowerPoints, looking at pictures, talking about the subject, and it's all virtual. So if you'd be interested in that, again, reach out and let me know. Again, I want to do everything I can to help you get the training you need so that you and your agency are better investigators. All right, today we're going to have on the show... A lady by the name of Lori Behrens, she's the executive director of Infant Loss Resources. And now Lori has been with that organization for over 20 years, but y'all may remember that it was formerly called SIDS Resources. Well, now it's been changed uh, to Infant Loss Resources because, of course, as we all know, SIDS is is something that is uh, declining greatly, right, because SIDS is Sudden Unexpected Death Syndrome, which means there is no viable reason why this child died. Well, now uh, it has uh, come to the point where we do know why. We're investigating differently. Laws are differently. So the rate of SIDS has come down. So now we're knowing why these babies die. 
So they've changed the name to Infant Loss Resources. And they do a lot of things. They're a nonprofit organization, but they help train police and coroners and medical examiners. Of course, they also have uh, support groups for families, and and they they deal with new mothers on the proper way to care for their babies. And so they do a whole gamut of things, not you know, not just for families, not just for police officers, not just for coroners, but they wrap it all together. And it's a it's a nonprofit organization. They provide lots of training, lots of resources. They've got lots of stuff on their webpage that you can take advantage of to become a better investigator. And I wanted to have her on to talk about what their organization provides. I want to talk a little bit of you know about infant death and and um you know, the whole sleeping positions and things that's changed over the years, and then what you can expect from infant loss resources. And so without any further delay, let's jump in to that conversation that I had with Lori. Adjust your earbuds, turn up those speakers, and hang on. It's now time for this week's featured conversation. All right, I'm back live with you now. And of course, as I introduced a little bit, uh, I have Lori Barons on the phone with me here from, uh, well, Infant Loss Resources, formerly SIDS Resources. Lori, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. So I know I've introduced you just a little bit. You know, you've been with this organization for tw- uh, for 12 years. No, you've been the um, actually the, the director for 12 years. You've been to the organization for over 20. But you know, tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, your background, and and what has you interested in being uh, the executive director of Infant Loss Resources. Sure. Um- Well, I have a background um, prior to coming to this organization. I did some work with um, early intervention for kids with special needs and and learned all about infant development for, for, you know, typically developing babies. So I had a background in infant development and then also in grief counseling. So it seemed like a good merge of those two um, set of experiences. Um, And uh, I've been working with the organization ever since. Yeah, well, it's a great organization, and I, I do remember it over the years as SIDS Resources. Now, I know Correct. that you're located in Missouri, but do you have any affiliation with organizations outside of Missouri around the country? Um, no, no formal affiliation. Of course, we um, communicate and, um, you know, keep each other updated on activities and share data and that kind of thing, but... We are really an independent organization. But certainly there are organizations in nearly every state that do what you do and what we're about to talk about. Uh, most states, yes. And in some places it's, it's more like a division of their Department of Health, but um, many states do have organizations similar to ours. Yeah, well, that's that's nice. And so uh, I know that uh, SIDS Resources was what it was for years, and I know that in the... the death investigation business, especially in Missouri, but all over the country, especially in Missouri, we have reduced the number of SIDS cases, as you know, because of the investigation. We now know why the baby is dying and it's no longer SIDS. So is that what prompted the name change or was there something else? Uh, No, really the diagnostic shift is, is really what prompted the name change and we want to be more inclusive and to make sure that any family affected by a sleep related infant death regardless of that diagnosis, um, is, uh, feels welcome and um, is, knows that our services are available to them. Sure. And so what kind of resources are there? I guess, I guess one way to ask this is, who is your client? Who is your 
target customer, so to speak? Is it going to be parents, law enforcement, or who? Sure. So our mission is to promote safe practices that reduce the risk of infant death and then to provide the grief support for families. So our primary customer is somewhat different for those two-pronged, you know, each of the prongs of that mission. But in terms of um, promoting safe practices, we target anybody who cares for a baby or teaches others to care for a baby. So that could be, you know, a health care provider, child care provider, parent educator, um, as well as first responders. We have an education program for that particular group as well. Um, then on the grief support side, you know, basically anyone who has lost a baby is eligible for our services. So uh, you're talking about uh, resources for caregivers. Do you, is that uh, parental education, babysitters, uh, maybe for teenagers, uh, that type of thing as well? Sure, sure. Um, we will talk with anyone, as I said, who cares for an infant. So we um, now that there's a law requiring child care providers receive education on safe sleep, um, a lot of that training is done online, but for years we did a lot of training for child care providers and still do. Um, Health care providers, we're looking at revamping our nurse training curriculum. And um, as I said, parent educators would be someone like parents as teachers. So um, basically anyone who has influence over um, new parents, as well as the new parents themselves. Right. Yeah, that's very, very important. And some of the education that you're talking about probably is sleeping position. And I teach uh, infant and child death investigation in Missouri, well, all over. I've taught it all over the country now, and it's it's written to CDC standards. And I, uh, I'm really big on the investigative side and police doing it right, because um, we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, but one of the things sure. we talk about is uh, this sleeping position. You know, I'm I'm 50 years old. I've raised three boys and I can remember how our first child we had to sleep on one way and then we went to the side and then the stomach and now back to the back and so over the years that's changed. So why first off let's weigh into that. Now I think we're saying in a plain crib, nothing else there on their back, that's it. Over the years yes. it's been back, stomach, side. Okay. So what changes those things? Sure. Um, well, the recommendation from the American Academy of Pediatrics for back to sleep was made in the early to mid-90s. Um, basically, it was made public in terms of a public awareness campaign around 1994. Um, and at that point, they said back or side, but in 1996, they said back only. And the recommendation really hasn't changed since that time. Um, and that recommendation was made after looking at data from other countries where, um, you know, in years prior they had made uh, similar recommendations and also they had seen a huge decrease in their SIDS rates. So that's when the American Academy of Pediatrics went ahead and made that decision. So um, while the recommendations have become more inclusive in terms of the entire sleep environment, the actual sleep position recommendation hasn't really changed in, you know, since 1996. So we talk about back sleeping for every sleep time, nap time, as well as nighttime. Right. And all of my children were born before that. I, I was an early achiever when it comes to that. So they were all <laughs> born in the 80s, and the, and the last one was born in 1990. And, of course, that was 
uh, you know, usually stomach or back or side. I mean, it, it's, it's depending on when we actually come, come into it and what we heard and what we were told in the rural area. But also, one of the things that I find around the country is uh, there are pockets of demographics in, in different states. And let's just take Missouri. I know there's demographics in Missouri where the demographic may be ethnically, uh, let's say, predominantly African-American. And in those, in, in, and, and even Spanish or Latino, in those cultures, it's not uncommon to have moms and grandmas more involved in the household. Okay, because that's right. a culture. Well, you know, grandma or, or you know, or even even mom up in there, he's like, oh, sleep that baby on their stomach. It might spit up, you know, and, and, and that's how we raised all you kids on their stomach. Well, that and so that's really predominant. Um, you're going to listen to auntie. You're going to listen to mom sometimes right. more so than you're going to listen to the nurse at the hospital. Do you see that as being, uh, you know, an issue that you've noticed as well? Yes, we realize, especially grandparents, are very influential. And like you said, you know, they will often say, I raised five kids and, you know, numerous grandkids, however many that might be. Um, And people, regardless, you know, of who you're talking to, really learn what they live. So if they, you know, put babies to sleep on their tummies and nothing happened, then they think that it's okay. Um, We've also done some focus group research and found that, the um, barriers to people actually implementing safe sleep have to do with um, comfort, closeness, and convenience. Those are the three C's we talk about. So some people still don't perceive babies to be comfortable lying on their backs when we know that it's, you know, that's really our projection on them. Babies are fine on their backs. Um, And then that closeness and convenience, when we talk about closeness, we talk about room sharing. So keep that crib or um, pack and play or bassinet right next to where you sleep in the same room, but just not in the same bed. So that addresses the closeness and as well as the convenience. You know, that room sharing is helpful for nighttime feeding, but we still want that baby um, in a separate sleep surface. Right. And I talk about co-sleeping because we have a lot of co-sleeping deaths, obviously. And and uh, whenever someone brings up the idea of co-sleeping, I, I've told them this. I did not make this up. I don't think. I'm sure I heard it somewhere else, but I've used it for years. And I'll tell people, so here's what you do. You bake you a cake and put icing on it, make it nice and pretty, and put it in bed with you. If you can right. sleep five nights, five nights with no frosting on you, your pillow, your blankets, okay, then I guess you're probably pretty safe to sleep with your baby. But we obviously know that's impossible. So anything right. anything that has icing on it is what touched your baby's face. So right. even, even you say, well, yeah, if I roll over on my baby, obviously I'll feel it. Okay, maybe, maybe not. But that comforter that pulls up over your two-week-old baby will kill your baby just as much as your arm will. And so, right. And then when you think about it that way, that really makes sense. If that cake is your baby's head and you're going to sleep five nights without getting frosting on yourself, there's no way. Right, right. Yeah, that's a that's a good way of explaining it. And um, we remind people that, you know, it doesn't have to be a complete overlay. It could be just extending, a, you know, even two fingers are enough to really keep that baby's, you know, nose and mouth uh, obstructed. So really as many different examples as you can give people and, you know, acknowledging that it might not be how they were raised and that, um, 
yes, it's a challenge. And every single time you put the baby to sleep, you have to make a decision and you might be overly tired. So that may, may not be the best time to make those decisions. So um, try and, when we do our training and teaching on safe sleep, we're learning to be more conversational so that we can answer questions and, you know, not scold people who may be telling us, you know, they, they're not following safe sleep. But just have conversations and try to um, kind of problem solve as to, you know, how we can address barriers that keep them from doing it. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of different issues. It seems on the surface to be a, a, an easy kind of uh, just do it this way and you'll be fine. <laughs> but it's, it's, sometimes it's a tougher sell than that. Right, certainly. And because you do have culture, you know, you have lifestyles that all come into play there. Uh, but right. let, let's talk for a second about the difference between uh, SIDS, S-I-D-S, and, of course, uh, S-U-I-D or S-U-I-D-I, SUDI. Um, there's a difference. There's certainly a difference there. So, so how would you explain that difference to family and or law enforcement? Sure, sure. So, first of all, we remind people that we um, don't actually make the diagnosis, but we can, um, you know, try to help especially families understand the process of the diagnosis and why that scene investigation is so extremely important in the diagnostic process um, because the autopsy alone is not going to give a definite answer. You know, pathologically, there's really no difference between what might, you know, what a, would have been called a SIDS death and or suffocation. Um, so many um, areas of the state use the uh, guideline that unless the baby is found alone on his or her back and in a safe crib or pack and play, um, they won't call it SIDS. You know, if a baby's in an adult bed, it will rarely be called SIDS for the all those reasons you just mentioned about the possibility of, you know, compromising that baby's breathing. Um, so what we do, you know, in general, what we say is that if the environmental risk factors are such that um, you know, any baby, vulnerable or not, couldn't breathe in that situation, <laughs> then that's going to be called accidental suffocation or, you know, sometimes it's positional asphyxia, something like that. Really, when we're looking at classic SIDS, we're looking at babies who did not have any other environmental risk factors. Right, and that doesn't mean that the risk factors actually caused the death but, exactly. but because they're in a crib with uh, stuffed animals and a blanket or, or whatever, then it's, it's very probable it could have. And so this is that sudden unexplained death in infancy or this sudden unexplained infant death um, as right. opposed to SIDS uh, because now we have risk factors where, like, like you said, if there has no risk factors, then it is SIDS. Uh, but right. now there are, you know, we had a four-day-old infant uh, – a couple of years ago, I guess it was, uh, die for four day four days old, four days old, and you know, put it down for a nap. Uh, got done feeding. Mom went and took a shower. You know, baby's finally asleep. Mom jumped out of the shower real quick, and the baby wasn't breathing. Called nine one one. Well, there's a classic SIDS, right? Well, twenty years ago, uh, maybe even less, but twenty years ago, that probably would have been ruled SIDS. It never would have been investigated, and it would have been done. But we know Missouri law has changed. There has to be autopsy. There has to be things investigated, uh, which is great. Well, of course, there was a Genetic, genetic heart defect found. The pathologist said he's a, he's a wonder he made it even out of the hospital, let alone four days. And so wow. now we know it's not SIDS, of course. And the family now knows 
if you're going to have another child, you need to tell your doctor this so they can monitor that baby because nobody knew it. And right. and there again, without the investigation, yes, the autopsy, but the rest of the investigation, the family would have just chalked it up to SIDS and that would have been it. And in, and, and in reality, it wasn't, of course. Right. Right. Yeah, that's that's a, a good example. Yeah. So let's talk about law enforcement. I know you do training around the state, uh, of course, in bordering states as well, counties with uh, the borders us. What type of training to, do you provide law enforcement? Sure. We provide training about the, um, the importance of that scene investigation, what to expect. Not that, you know, you can ever say in any given situation what you might walk into as a first responder, but, you know, what SIDS and or SUDI death might look like. Um, one example of something that, that we talk to um, first responders about is oftentimes the babies are found and there will be some, you know, spit up or even t- some blood-tinged mucus on the sheet or close to the baby where the baby was sleeping. If not, if a person isn't experienced in responding to infant death, they might think that that indicates trauma, when actually that's really a result of the death and not a cause. So, you know, those are things that we have learned from the medical examiners over the years, and we can remind people that if you see that, it doesn't mean that trauma was inflicted on that baby, and that's, you know, we see that in almost every case of sudden unexpected infant death. So those are just details like that that we can go over. We can talk about, you know, explaining to the parents what is going to happen, not allowing the parents to, you know, follow the ambulance to the hospital if the baby is being transported. We prefer that someone else drive those parents <laughs> to the hospital. Um, you know, little things like that, trying to, to make sure that children who might be, you know, the siblings of the baby or just any children in the area, try to make sure that they're, you know, in another room when all of the the resuscitation efforts are taking place. You know, acknowledging that you can't always control things like that and may not have enough time to to pay attention to those things. But we go over, you know, situations like that to where if you do have, for example, law enforcement and EMS on the scene you know, then you might have law enforcement take the kids away while the EMS are performing resuscitation. So, you know, and that varies widely according to where people live, what part of the state, but we really just try to give an overview. And number one, talk about the importance of the scene investigation. And then number two, talk about how important comments that are made that day are for the family down the road. We hear families all the time talk about while the first responders were so helpful and so supportive, and they really made, you know, the worst day of our life a, a little more bearable. So we'd like to share that kind of information with, with law enforcement and first responders as well. Yeah, that's fantastic information because that's coming from not only the investigative side, and, and you're, you guys aren't getting necessarily into the investigative side real far maybe, but you're certainly right. talking about this, the, the emotional, psych, the psychological side, but you know, but also uh, some scene security and, and things like that. You know, one of the things that I teach a lot uh, of, or I want officers to know, investigators to know, is more so in any other death, uh, the victim is moved from one location to another. I mean, we're not going to go into the bedroom and find Grandpa not breathing, and we pick him up and run to the living room couch. But in a baby right. death, it's always that way, or you know, always is a big word, but you know, it's all you always have more than one scene. Uh, it seems like right. and 
I'm cautious in saying this, but I've been pretty vocal. I just think that sometimes paramedics haul babies they shouldn't haul because they don't want to face the parents. They want to give the the perception that we're doing all that we can. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's valid, but by and large, it's not. And I think yeah. I think that disrupts a crime a scene. I, I don't want to say crime scene. I'm very careful not to say that in these cases because we know that most of them are accidental, not not homicide or right. or 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 uh, natural. But we know. Do you work and do you mention the fact about hauling babies that shouldn't be hauled? Do you just not even get involved in that protocol? Do you have advice? How does your agency respond to that question, or do you not at all respond? Yeah, so that's a really good question. What we typically do is say, number one, you need to follow your own organization's protocol. (laughs) You know, we're not going to go against any individual um, locality, you know, or what they have been taught. But we do, we typically tell first responders to, as much as possible, respect the parents' wishes. But if it is obvious, you know, that nothing can be done, if that baby is obviously not going to be revived, then, you know, as much as possible, try to gently explain that to the parents. And that's, you know, I can't imagine, I'm not a first responder. I haven't ever been in that situation. So I can't imagine trying to make that judgment, you know, on the, you know, in such a moment, certainly letting, letting them know that it's okay not to transport that baby if you really don't think there's any hope of, I mean, you know, certainly there are times when it's obvious that the baby has already died. So um, transporting it may not be the best thing in that situation. Right. And I and I agree with you that you could not speak into their protocol. I can't either. Uh, they do have their own protocol, and, and we're not here to change that. Uh, but I do know most ambulance districts that I know of uh, have the protocol that they're going to generally haul. I do know of some, if I understand correctly, in the St. Louis area where some of those ambulance districts have changed their protocol that if they cannot get a sustainable heartbeat on the scene of a patient of any age, it can be 90 or nine days, if they cannot get a sustainable heartbeat on the scene, they don't haul. And if I'm right, that's a fairly new protocol change in the last 12 months or so. Uh, and, and and that's great. But, but, you know, I don't, I understand it's emotional. I, to look to look at a husband and say, I'm sorry, there's nothing more I can do for your wife is emotional. But some people, I guess, and maybe more so when you look at a mom and say, there's nothing more I can do for your baby, that might be more emotional. But, you know, it I just seems like they haul infants sometimes. I know they're viable. I know that sometimes they can respond to medication better. I, I get all of that if that's true. But like you mentioned, and you were very politically correct and you were very good at the way you answered that. But sometimes they haul babies that shouldn't be hauled, meaning they're already in rigor mortis. I mean, they've uh-huh. already got lividity. If you've got lividity settling, you've been dead longer than six minutes, eight minutes. You're not going to come back, right? And generally, they're found the next morning. They've been dead for a couple hours. Right. Yeah. That me- and so that and I'll come off that soapbox, but that messes up the investigation, which then messes up. Things like, could it be criminal, but probably isn't, more so accidental and natural. But now are we going to give the parents the right information so the next infant don't die? You know, everything's been changed. Everything's been hauled to the hospital. The police don't know about it for hours later. By the time you go to the house, it's all changed. So it isn't an, an issue of trying to convict somebody. It's an issue of, 
I respect the parents as, as well. So I want to give them the right information and they want to know why their baby died. And I want to make sure it doesn't happen to the next baby. So by not hauling that baby, a dead baby, is actually doing the parents more good, at least in my opinion. But I'm an investigator, so obviously I have a different look on things. Sure, sure. But that is a good point and something that could certainly be, um, you know, conveyed, I think, to first responders. Right. And, and I know I, I, I know they're not in this situation and they just want to get out of there as soon as they can. And they'll let a doctor tell them that I'm sorry, you're, there's nothing more we can do. I, I get it. But there's other yeah. reasons why, you know, but... Um, so you, in this particular case, of course, you guys just deal with Missouri and, and those listeners in other states uh, can find their organizations in their state. But And you have these resources. You have a very great uh, professional website. And But I believe you also do training, uh, like you said, to law enforcement in different parts of the state. Is, is that true or do you just have a central location? Um, we do cover the entire state. So, um, you know, if we are going to a rural population, we probably need a little more notice to put that on our calendar, but we have our admin offices in St. Louis. We also have a satellite office in Kansas City and um, a smaller but very um, active staff person who covers the rural part of the state, so she has a satellite office as well, Um, and our staff people are, you know, good about getting on the road and going wherever they need need to go in terms of providing the education. So we do cover the state of Missouri and surrounding counties on the Illinois and Kansas side. And what resources besides education do you provide to like for law enforcement, coroners, medical examiners? Uh, are there, are there forms? Are there charts? What, what else do you provide maybe from your website or? Well, at this point it's really um, the education we do. Um, Occasionally send, you know, e-blast information if we have articles of interest that might be of interest to the coroner population. But any any locality that would want further training in terms of, you know, how we do provide that um, education for first responders, we are certainly willing to do that. We've, in the past, we haven't done it real recently, but in the past we've, you know, coordinated with some coroners and other public health officials in different areas of the state to do combined um, awareness activities about safe sleep, um, whether that be through a health fair or some other kind of, you know, public forum. So we're really um, open to suggestions and willing to, um, to try to meet the needs of the community because every community is different, as you know. And sometimes in the more rural communities, we will try to get, uh, you know, several counties together you know, departments of health together along with, um, you know, medical examiners and coroners uh, so that we can get a greater bang for our buck, so to speak, and get people from surrounding counties to also attend. Uh, and that, that's great because doing a, a joint thing like that is is generally going to get more people involved when you've got every agency promoting it. Now, you, right. Missouri, because uh, I'm from Missouri, so I'm familiar with Missouri has their own forms and, and things like that. Uh, for scene investigation, but there's also, of course, CDC puts out the the nine page SUDI form. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Um, yeah, uh, Missouri ones are fine. the 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 SUDI one is huge, okay, but it covers a lot more. Um, do you teach using that form, or do you stick just to the the form that Missouri uses? Yeah, we we um, again we refer that back to individual protocols. We um, because we know there are 
some really good depth in investigator training sources out there um, that do teach the CDC form. We don't really get into that piece of the investigation. Our teaching really focuses more on the fact that it should be done, <laughs> you know, so the importance of that scene investigation, giving tips and pointers, you know, how to ask questions, not to say, you know, why, but uh, more open-ended questions. We don't want to say, well, why was the baby sleeping here and not there, you know, which often might lead to a person shutting down a little bit. So open-ended questions, really just guidance on how to get the best information. Right. And, and our, you know, when I teach and our academy teaches, we do teach the CDC form, but it's because we teach all across the country. And so that's a generic right. form. But again, Missouri has their own. Other states have their own. And the CDC form is quite large and extensive, but it, you know, it's, it's standard. So we try to teach a national standard, uh, but they're both, again, they're both fine. And I do agree, whatever the protocol is, as long as you're getting the information. And that's, that's, right. that is the definitely key point. So one last thing I, I want to touch on is, uh, I'm sure you guys probably teach it, recommend it. Um, how do you weigh in with uh, doing uh, reenactments, uh, lasting, placed, found? I mean, is that something that you teach your healthcare professionals, police, things like that? Uh, we do recommend the reenactments because we know that that really is a key piece of the, you know, investigation afterwards, recognizing that, yes, it's a difficult thing to ask a parent to do, and some parents just you know, maybe too emotionally overwrought to do so. But we talk about, again, with kind of what you said about transporting, you know, if a parent is, if it's explained to the parent that this is going to help everyone figure out what happened and why this death occurred, you know, parents really want to know that answer as well. So, you know, if explained in a gentle manner and parents know the importance of why it's done, then we really do advocate for those scene investigations because we get really good information from that. Uh, cor correct. And, and again, it goes into most parents will do it. It's how you've presented yourself during the investigation, filled out the CDC form or the Missouri form, how your um, demeanor is to them. And generally with the right conversation, parents are more than willing to do it because it helps right. keep them there. Because most parents are going to want to know, the general question is, why did my baby die, and am I, and, and am I responsible? What did right. I do? Every, every parent blames himself, and, and right. this helps them to determine that, okay, maybe you, you know, now we wouldn't tell them this at the scene, maybe, but maybe you did have some culpability here because, you know, you shouldn't have had 15 stuffed animals and a quilt in there. You know, I don't know. But then sometimes it's, it's like at the end of this, you had no responsibility in this at all. It, think it just was an accident, this is what happened, or it SIDS. And so I think it does give parents that peace of mind one way or the other. Um, and if you approach it that way, uh, certainly calmly, I have had very few parents uh, turn it down. Most of them over the years have been like, you know, I understand, let's let's do this. And, and, and right. you know, we've had, and in our particular case, at the time that we we're recording this, we're, in the last month we've had three infant deaths, all from wow. different causes. One One was a... We got ran over by a car, you know, one was a shaken baby, and then one was just an unresponsive. And so different ca different situations, but three in a, in a month, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty hard on any agency, emotionally. Right. Exactly, yes. Yeah, and, and, and I say that, and, bring, and so this is my last, last comment. So emotional. 
I teach a lot about officers watching their emotional side of um, their own personal emotions when it comes to infant death. We can right. see we can see grandma dead. We can see the horrible things that we see with shootings and stabbings. We see all of that. But if you work in infant death, it is totally different to your mind. And uh, every listener out there should know that there has to be ways to deal with that and not compartmentalize that and bottle it up because an infant death affects us more personally than anything else. Have you found that to be true? Oh, absolutely, yes. And we have had... Um you know, law enforcement and first responders over the years that have come to us and, you know, after having experience and wanted to volunteer, you know, or help our organization in some way, or even, you know, offer themselves as someone, you know, that another first responder could talk to. So that's always helpful. You know, in the St. Louis area, we have a critical incident stress debriefing um, organization that we refer to. And um, I believe there is a similar organization in Kansas City. In the rural areas, we, you know, we don't know as, as much about each individual county, but we do try to, you know, if somebody is in need of just talking, they can certainly call us because even though we are, you know, encountering the family at a different point, there are certainly some commonalities in terms of how, um, challenging it is sometimes, you know, to be working with families who have suffered such a tragic loss. So we are available for first responders, you know, if they want to just chat or we can try to connect them with someone else who's been through a similar experience. Right. That That's great resource. And of course, your your website, infantlossresources.org, infantlossresources.org, uh, yeah, you're based in Missouri, uh, but you've got resources on there that can help anybody in any state or country. And, and Lori, this has been a fascinating conversation on a very, very tough subject. And, and I appreciate what you, I appreciate the work your organization does. And I thank you for coming on and sharing with our listeners. Oh, thank you very much for having me. You have a great day. Thanks. You do the same. All right, I'm right back with you here live, so to speak. So I, I hope you enjoyed that. I know that there was a lot of information given. I know there's a lot of resources you can get and take advantage of. And if your state doesn't have a program like this, then reach out to the one in Missouri and see if they can help you find resources or send you some resources. And they can probably direct you in some training. Of course, if you want a training on investigating infant and child death, you know, we offer a four and a half hour online program that's to, to CDC standards, NIJ standards. It's approved by the American Board of Medical Legal Death Investigators. It's an online training. Really, really a good training on investigating infant and child death. So you might think about that. So I hope you've enjoyed this month theme of investigating infant and child death. Starting in March. We are going to have a theme on office management, leadership, things like that. It's for everyone. It's not just for leaders. It's not just for the boss. It's not for management. It's for everyone. And I think that you'll get a lot of good out of that. We're going to talk about uh, building teams and dealing with conflict. And, and if you are a supervisor, then what it takes to be a supervisor and how to have a good crew, how to have a good team. If you're not a supervisor, then how to just to be a good person on your way to becoming a supervisor. So next month is going to be fantastic as well. And we may have a few bonuses thrown in between now and then as well. So again, thank you for sticking around through the this whole podcast and just being a listener as a whole. 
I have not asked this in a while, but if you will go to whatever podcast directory that you listen to us on and leave a rating and review, that would help immensely. I would very much appreciate that. Until next week, everybody, find a way to be a blessing in your world. Again, it will come back to you tenfold. And above all, above all, be safe. Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSPN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coroner training. 3617-1024 scene on route to morgue.